Welcome back to the program. Let's pray in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Heavenly Father, in Jesus' name, I thank you and I praise you for the ways that you love us and take care of us. I thank you, Father, for all of the blessings you've given to us in this month of May. I thank you for the the gift of the family of God, the gift of the saints, especially our Blessed Mother and St. Joseph and St. Padre Pio. I thank you, Jesus, for these incredible gifts that you have given to us in our lives. Help us not to take you for granted, not to take our Catholic faith for granted, not to take our following of you for granted. Lord, give us... um, Give us mercy, but also give us fervor. Give us new devotion uh, to honor you in the way that we ought. And we make this prayer in Jesus' holy name. Amen. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, what's the doctrine that St. John Paul II made prominent in our time that has had such a profound impact on my life? It's the, it's the concept of the communion of persons. It's a great phrase, communio personarum in Latin, the communion of persons. It's something that St. John Paul II uh, discovered and probably influenced its appearance in a basic way, and in, in, uh, in, in some foundational like stones were laid at the Second Vatican Council. But it's something that took on a great prominence in his writings. It showed up in his revised version of Love and Responsibility, uh, a more focused inclusion of the concept of the communion of persons. And then um, it also plays quite an important part in his uh, Theology of the Body. But Theology of the Body is um, a more narrow uh, concept as compared to the theology of the person of St. John Paul II, in which he says that we who are created in the image of God as human beings, as human persons, are created in the image of God not only because we have an intellect, will, and memory, there we go, we're in the image of the Trinitarian God, having the capacity to know what is true, to love what is good, and to make the past present through memory. And those are imaging the persons of the, the Son, the Spirit, and the Father, intellect, will, and memory. And um, however, he drew upon another stream in our tradition and highlighted it as it relates to the fact that we are created in the image of God, that we're created in the image of God, not only as an individual person, but even more perfectly, more completely, in that we are made for relationships. We are made for communion with other persons. And that is, he, he identifies it not as a facet, as an attribute of being a human being. <clears throat> in other words, uh, if you look in St. Thomas Aquinas's Summa Theologica, he builds off of uh, Aristotle, where man is a social animal, that by nature, uh, we have a human nature, but we also have a, uh, uh, an aspect that is social. So we have a social nature. So it's an attribute rather than something that is constitutive. In other words, I on my own, just as an individual, am not fully and will not fully become who I am unless I'm in relationship with other persons, in a relationship that is marked by communion, a communio, which means a relationship that is marked by giving and receiving, an openness to the other, a willingness to acknowledge, to celebrate, to receive, to affirm, all of those words. It's this circulation of love, and I, I, I'm not going to go too much further into it, but 
The reason why this is, uh, I bring this up is because what I witnessed on Tuesday night, a Tuesday night in the current home, um, we had, uh, we were about to, to gather together for our family prayer time. I was in, in the in the room where we pray, and, and that's the room where we have um, our icons. It's where we have the enthroned sacred heart and immaculate heart images. Uh, we have candles. We even have um, a little bit of blessed incense as well, believe it or not. And um, it's the place where we will gather, and, and then it, it's set apart for prayer. We, we also do other things there, but the kids know when we get in there at night, and Carrie loves to fix the lighting and create the environment, and then we're going to pray uh, as a family. Well, before we got to prayer, two things happened. The first was in the, in the kitchen. Uh, the kids were cleaning up after kitchen, and uh, some of the kids had basketball practice. They got in late, and so they were sort of quickly eating some food before we prayed. And a question came up, and the question was about dating. Dad, would you be okay? No, it was mom. And, and it was kind of a teasing because my mom, uh, Carrie, was getting ganged up on <laughs> by the five teenagers in the house. That's right. We have a 19-year-old back from Steubenville, an 18, a 17, soon to be 18-year-old senior at the Oaks, and then we have a, a sophomore, 16, a freshman, uh, 15, and a seventh grader, 13, and they were all in the kitchen. And there was just lots of laughter. There was some banter and some teasing. And it all had to do with, would you let so-and-so date? If so, if, if this young man came to you and said, can I go on a date with you, with one of your daughters, what would you say? And then it was, well, which guy that we know, would you be okay with? Would you be okay with this guy? And then it was, well, what about this young lady? Would you be okay if uh, I wanted to go on a date with this lady, this young lady? And it was, it, there was, there was a, a freedom, a spontaneity. There was a kind of a teasing quality uh, in there. And I, I was just smiling in the other room. And also, frankly, I had my um, notebook open, my reflective journal, and I was madly taking notes because I knew I wanted to talk about this tonight. Uh, and I, and I'm, I'll get there. I mean, tonight, you're listening to this on Wednesday morning. Uh, I'm talking about formation for courtship, formation for dating. Ooh, this is where we're headed, okay? But I want to build on that by just saying that one of the greatest, um, let's say, sources of joy that I experience in my family life, and I'm not sure there's anything more joyful, is when we as a family, when we, Carrie and I, together with our kids, are manifesting and making real, expressing the reality that as a family, as a mom and a dad, and as our kids, and they as siblings, live as a communion of persons. Where I see it, I can taste it, I can smell it in the air, I can sense it just in, in that, again, in that circulation of love, and that it's good, it's true, it's beautiful, it's life-giving. That's what I want. That's what I want for my family, and and that's what makes me uh, joyful, like filled to overflowing. It's like that is 
That's life right there. More than accomplishments and stuff, vacations and money, uh, power, fame, all, all those other things. No, the communion of persons. It's where there's truth and love and goodness and beauty and freedom and spontaneity and mutuality and, and complementarity. All of these beautiful words that are connected to John Paul II's theology of the person are on display. And, and and just in this fun, but also playful, but also in some ways inquiring banter that my kids were having with Carrie. And it's, it's I don't know if it's the springtime and love is in the air and <laughs> all that sort of stuff, but the conversations have been circling around that theme a little bit more regularly. <clears throat> um and so, so there's, there's that, and I'm going to get there, but then after that, okay, kids, let's get in the other room, come on and sit down. And we were going to start our rosary, but then one of the kids asked a question that came up in their schooling and it was connected to uh, a senior thesis. I mentioned on the program, Ariana had given her senior thesis presentation. It's a oral presentation that is essentially memorized that lasts about 20 minutes. And it, it brings together an important theme that they have studied over the course of their years at the Oaks. And so I mentioned that Ariana's theme was uh, the, how do you revive or how do you foster renewed missionary uh, zeal and fervor among young people today, zeal for missionary work. And I was, they started to talk about a couple of the other theses that the kids heard. And it was, it was really, it was a really neat conversation that came from it. Uh, like one of them was, is it a sin to send your kid to a public school? And I thought, what a fascinating conversation to have kids talking about this. Anyways, it was, uh, and obviously in and of itself, it's not a sin, but then when they started to talk about the the dangers that are there and the ways in which, and things that I've talked about, but I won't go into it tonight. It, it's just that I loved that my kids were all engaging in that. And then they went into other questions that were Catholic questions versus Protestant Reformation questions. And I I was primarily sitting back and watching my kids, my freshman at Franciscan, and then my four kiddos at the Oaks talk about Catholic beliefs regarding faith and works, the reality of the Eucharist, Sola Scriptura, and a Catholic understanding and response to those, a Catholic apologetic and refutation and a Catholic presentation of, of Catholic beliefs in the light of that. And I thought, my goodness, where would kids learn this stuff? And and there was that communion of persons again. And I thought, wow, that is, again, for me, just such a joy to be able to have the kids be together and have that kind of communication, that kind of conversation. So uh, I want to get to courtship and formation. Uh, but just to say this, any young couples out there that you're thinking about, you know, you're getting married, you're engaged, or you're newly married. It's hard when you have more than one kid close together in age. Well, let me tell you, as a guy that has right now five teenagers in the home, in addition to two other younger kids and then two older kids out of the home, nine kids in just about 13 years, um, it is 
it's a gift. It's such an amazing gift. Right? The greatest gift God gives in a, a married couple is a child, and the greatest gift parents give to a child is a brother and a sister, a brother or a sister. Uh, and after the, after the rosary was done, and after the kids uh, were off going to bed, uh, Carrie and I were back in the kitchen by ourselves, and I just thought, Carrie, could you ever imagine the gift God gave us in giving us the gift of children to be able to witness what we just witnessed tonight? And it, it was a simple thing, but it was it was so beautiful. It was I was so grateful that my kids could enjoy each other and and and. Uh, be together praying with us. It, it wasn't perfect prayer. <laughs> a lot of it was, let's get through this rosary. I want to move on. But they were there and they were praying. And I, I was I was grateful and full of joy. Just thank you, God, for that gift. Okay. One of the gifts that I've been talking about on Sound Insight in the last couple of days on Monday with Father Lewis and then yesterday was the gift of formation and the importance of formation if we are going to live our lives as disciples of Jesus Christ. One of the uh, important uh, strategies, or you could even call it a principle, for growing as a disciple is having a mentor, a spiritual director, or modern-day language, you might call that person a coach, someone who's going to walk with you, to guide you, and to support you, encourage you, and and hold you accountable as you go along your way. And for so many people, that kind of companionship that let's walk together in this for this time in this way in order to accomplish this goal is critical to success. It's so critical to success. I can think about three or four areas in my own life right now where that is so very obvious. Um, I mentioned that a week ago I saw my uh, my physical therapist and saw her again for my first full appointment, and it was painful but also wonderful. Um, finally addressing the problem in my calf, um, I needed to not only pray but to take prudent action in order to address the problems that I have with my calf. And I couldn't have done that without the accompaniment of this wonderful physical therapist. And right next door is my trainer. Um, I think I mentioned that I was doing this barter where I'm helping her grow her business. And in exchange, she's giving Carrie and me some semi-private training sessions where I got to tell you, putting it on my calendar, it's making sure that I am going to get in a workout, but a workout that's also safe and effective. It's safe because she recognizes the limitations of my calf and also the impact of my concussion, not to overdo it, but also effective because she can recognize the kinds of exercises to do and what order to do them, the proper technique, and then also, guess what? The cheerleading and encouragement as well as the corrections when I'm doing it the wrong way. Uh, Those are just a a couple of really easy examples of where having um, someone walk with me just makes all the difference. When we come back, I'm going to build off of that and get into more serious matters related to that as well. Welcome back to Sound Insight. So today on the program, I'm talking about formation, continuing to build off that theme that I've been covering this week. And I'm, I'm focusing in on a principle, and that principle is, in order for you to go deeper in your formation, you often need a guide, someone to direct you. In fact, you'll see this 
you see it very prominent in the writings of St. John of the Cross, for instance, that it's difficult for a soul to advance without a good spiritual director, but pray uh, for God's favor and for God's mercy to receive a good spiritual director because those are very few and far between. And so there are um, there, there was a, a whole book on this that, called The Book of All Saints. And in this book, it's by Adrienne von Speyer. One of the things that she highlights in her insights into the spiritual lives of many great and holy persons, saints and others in the history of the church was this person advanced so far but didn't get further because he or she lacked a wise spiritual director a wise guide to help her or him sift through and sort out what was happening here, what was the phenomena, or what steps ought you to take in order for you to progress. When you receive great coaching, mentorship, uh, someone to accompany you, you can get further, you can get there faster, and you can get there often um, more easily because you have the, the wise guidance of someone who has gone before you on the way. Uh, it's something that, without question, has been a part of my professional life for 25 years. You know, parachuting in to work with very successful CEOs and senior executives in big companies and in small businesses to see how, if I can parachute in and give them some some accompaniment, if I can walk with them and help them come to insight more quickly, help them figure out the meaning of that insight and its application, and then walking with them to be able to actually make that stuff happen is an incredible gift to provide to CEOs. Honestly, I'm seeing this happen now on almost a daily basis with all of the folks that I'm helping as a real estate agent. So you've heard me mention on Sound Insight that I now do real estate as a mission and ministry, feeling a deep sense of purpose to accompany families who are discerning a move. Because for so many of them that are coming this way, coming to Spokane or Coeur d'Alene or Post Falls, because I'm licensed in Washington and Idaho, to help them realize, my goodness, this is not just buying a house and getting a good deal, but it's just the whole discernment process of how do we do this and helping to sort out conversations I can see it is such a mission in ministry to walk with folks, to walk with folks as they are making these kind of decisions. So, oh, by the way, uh, I know many folks are wondering, like, what's happening in the real estate market? And there is really and truly a sense of plateauing of prices. In, in narrow sectors of the market, prices are still going up. And so what I mean narrow sectors, I mean like from houses that are like 350 to about 550, though there's a lot of buyers in there. And depending on the exact neighborhoods, those houses still get many offers quickly. Then if you move up a segment to say 550 up to maybe 800, you don't have quite as many buyers and houses are tending to sit on the market longer. And then even coming down in price, um, and so they're not just immediately getting multiple offers and all these, um, all of these uh, escalation clauses to higher than full price, all cash offers. Though I got to say, 
when you get above 850, 900 to 1.2, 1.3 million, if the right house shows up, you still have um, a number of all-cash buyers that are there ready to step in and get the deal done quickly. Once you get above 1.3 to, say, over $2, $2 million, you're typically in a, in a price range where Unless you're in very specific markets, and I know that some of those markets still exist on the east east side, like in the Kirkland, Bellevue, Issaquah area, where houses can come on and and go pending even at $2 million and higher. I, I was listing a house and went pending in two days, and it was over $2 million. Uh, that, yes, that still, that happens. Um, and, and so I am seeing, however, the... With all of the agents I'm talking to across the state in homes that I'm listing or helping to buy, that there is a peaking and even a kind of retraction a bit on prices. So I say that just this is my own insight into the market. So deal, you know, take it with whatever grain of salt you'd like, but take a look around and see how long houses are staying on the market. Uh, and and see if the houses are still being premium priced and getting going pending in a matter of a few days. But or are you seeing in fact uh, prices plateauing? And uh, unless it's the right house priced in the right way, um, it could sit on that market for a time and then even begin to come down. So I say all that just to say if you're thinking about selling your house, thinking that I, I want to catch the market at the right time. Giddy up, get on your horse quickly if you can. Um, otherwise, you might find that with the combination of inflation and prices going up the way they are, um, you're seeing rates, again, fluctuate a bit. They're going up, they're going down a little bit. Um, but with inflation the way it is and, and people feeling a bit more um, maybe conservative, that if you're thinking about selling your house um, and you want to get top dollar for it, that market is dwindling in many locations at many price points in the area of um, where I'm, where my voice is being heard. So move quickly, <laughs> uh, move quickly. I don't mean actually move. Well, I, if you are going to list your house, you're going to move. So yeah, move quickly. Um, so there you go. There's some guidance. There's some guidance from someone who's spending, I'm spending, I don't know, at least six hours a day, uh, probably more talking to buyers and sellers and agents and helping either in a buying activity or a selling activity um, for the folks I'm serving. So, and I'm talking to other agents too across the state. So anyways, well, if I can be of service to you, if I can help you even just to discern that, in fact, I'm meeting with someone tonight, a family discerning a move this way. I'd love to meet with you. It doesn't cost anything. And in fact, I meet with folks over Zoom all the time. Um, and you can just you can actually go now. We've got a website for it, drtomcurran.com. If you go to drtomcurran.com, that used to be my website for my coaching and uh, consulting services, but now I'm using it for my uh, my real estate services, drtomcurran.com. There's an easy way for you to contact me there, uh, phone number and all of that. And, and I'd love to meet up with you. Love to uh, do a Zoom meeting with you, and learn more about your situation, and and see if I can be of service or just even to say a prayer with you and, and help you figure stuff out. Okay. Guidance like that can be critical, can be so very helpful as you are growing as a disciple. So I want to take that insight 
And I want to apply it now to the concept of courtship. Courtship. Now, when you say courtship, what are you talking about? Basketball? No. You're talking about legal? No. I'm talking about dating. Dating, getting engaged. And it's a fascinating topic for any number of reasons, but also a really important topic. So I did a big wind-up with St. John Paul II's Communion of Persons because I am going to draw upon him ultimately as a source of insight into the stages of a dating relationship's growth. But I also want to talk a little bit about the concept of formation, being intentional about forming sons and daughters to be prepared for dating, to be prepared for courtship. And I mention this because I'm going to say the typical parent listening to my voice has received little to no direct formation, maybe dug up some information, but very little Catholic formation around the concept of dating and getting engaged in getting married. So I, in the last couple of days, have listened to uh, Archbishop Fulton Sheen, uh, Father Chad Ripperger, and another priest give uh, an extensive talk on the themes that are circling around courtship. And uh, I'm also going to draw upon, as I said, St. John Paul II in his book, Love and Responsibility, where he talks about the four levels of love in a uh, a relationship that heads towards marriage. And I, I'm thrilled that I had a chance to listen to these sources to help really form my conversation with you today. But I, I want to begin first by saying that if you're like me, you didn't get a lot of this growing up. Now, maybe you came from an extraordinary family where you had open, honest, easy conversations or, or awkward, but you had conversations that your parents deemed important and even necessary uh, in order to be able to uh, understand, to protect you in uh, in situations that, as you discerned and moved towards marriage, that you would be ready. You you do it in the right way. I didn't receive that. I did not grow up in a home that talked about dating. It was not a thing. Uh, you might remember I grew up outside of Boston. I grew up uh, in the 70s and graduated from high school in the early 80s. Um, and then my third year of college, I was in the seminary. So uh, I didn't have a lot of years where dating was going to be something that relevant in my life. But there was a reason for that. And that was because I grew up in a home that was very conservative, uh, strict, very strict, and there was a high expectation that we would honor and obey mom and dad. And uh, one of the things that they said about dating was there will be none of it <laughs> until you're 16. Okay. There will be none of it until you're 16. And I still remember the, uh, the way that they would proposed the argument was what good would would it be to go on a date before you're 16 because you can't drive what are you going to do pick her up on your bike and 
lo and behold, when my kids were in grade school, uh, in eighth grade, uh, maybe heading towards high school or in the oldest, you know, in maybe a freshman in high school, I used the same <laughs> example. And it's so funny because my kids uh, thought that made sense. <laughs> um, but here's the thing. When I think about how I'm raising my kids today with regards to their understanding of dating and courtship, a lot of it, not a lot of it, at least in the background, what the Catholic Church refers to as the um, remote preparation, the remote preparation that I received to prepare my kids to, to be a, a mentor and a, and a parent and a coach for my kids regarding dating and courtship, the remote preparation was the preparation that I received in my life as a young adult, as, as a young person growing up in my family. And there was a tone, there was a spirit, there was a way of seeing dating that even if my parents didn't say it like this, it was something that I received, I experienced as something that was um, uh, out of bounds. It was something that was uh, something not to be uh, teased teased and, and joked about, and, and there wasn't easy, free-flowing, fun conversations like I heard tonight in my house. Maybe that was one of the reasons why I smiled so broadly and, and enjoyed it so much was that I couldn't imagine that conversation have ever happened in my house growing up. And so when I finally turned 16, all of a sudden, and I had an older brother, just a year older, who, when he turned 16, he was like, oh, okay, there wasn't some kind of like graduation ceremony where, you know, they finally sat us down and said, okay, George, my older brother, he's 16, so now he can be open to date. It was not talked about. There, My dad was very quiet. He was very, um, that was he wasn't someone that um, was a, uh, a mentor or, or someone who was going to form and coach us in these matters. That was not something that he received from his father because his father died when he was um, just like 12 years old and um, was a truck driver. So he was not even around that much for a number of years before then. So um, my father didn't receive a lot and you can't give what you don't have. And so he, he gave what he had, which was an amazing example of a hardworking, dutiful husband and father, but not someone who was playful, engaging, or communicative around these kind of matters. So here it happens. I turned 16, and I don't, my older brother doesn't talk about it with me. My younger brother's not talking about it with me. I'm feeling very shy and self-conscious about it. So I didn't date in high school. I just didn't do it. And I felt really awkward. And um, it was only when I just graduated the very, very, very last few months of high school and then into my first year of college that I had any sense of confidence to be able to really talk to, um, to, talk to young ladies in a way that was uh, easygoing and, um, and peaceful and uh, something that I felt like they enjoyed and I enjoyed as well. Um, but it didn't lead to dating, uh, and, and and that was true all the way until I had my uh, conversion, my awakening of faith when I was uh, 19 years old. So the freshman 
uh, the summer the summer after my freshman year in college. So I'll, I'll pick up on this in a minute, more on sound insight, because it's going to lead to, well, what am I supposed to hand on if I didn't receive a lot? Welcome back to Sound Insight. This is Tom Curran. So I'm just sharing with you a bit about uh, not all the, not all, I'm not going to share gruesome details. <laughs> there weren't a lot, but uh, dating wasn't a, a real part of my life. I, I think I went on a couple of dates um, my freshman year in college, but it was really when I had this awakening in faith that there was a much greater sense of experiencing the love that God had for me. And that allowed me to overcome a sense of let's say, disgust in my own self, like a sense of self-hatred or disgust in myself to coming into a sense of my own and um, learning to have an authentic sense of self-love um, that I could be accepted and be found acceptable by women as well. And that was good. That was something that was becoming more healthy in me. So, well, guess what? At that point, I ended up uh, having a girlfriend who was also had experienced an awakening in her faith. Well, then I discerned a call to the priesthood <laughs> and entered the seminary. I still remember, I still remember the one of the interviews I had with the psychologist who um, uh, interviewed me about you know all kinds of things as part of my entrance process. And I can remember him being a bit struck at um, my limited experience of um, of dating, my limited experience of um, of women, and um, I I don't know if I was it was it was a combination of being naive and innocent, um, but just lacking in a sense of worldly experience around uh, dating relationships, and I I don't know why he was so surprised, but he was surprised. Um, and I, I can remember feeling like, is he going to not, is he going to recommend that I don't enter the seminary? <laughs> but, and I can even remember a little bit of, well, maybe I need to emphasize a bit more the fact that I had a girlfriend uh, for, I don't know, a handful of months before I discerned a call to the seminary and, and she just became a, reverted to being a friend of mine. Um, but I made it in spent the five years there and then maybe that understands why well then when I left the seminary I moved into a Christ, uh, a household a Catholic Christian household um, and there began to learn a bit more began to get formed more around the concept of dating and um, of courting so that was that was the beginning of of my journey so I, I just lay that out as, a lot of parents, a lot of parents I'm talking to, you you might have stories that, that have at least some connecting points with mine, namely that your own experience of dating and courtship may have come more from friends, from what was accepted and acceptable in your family um, and or with the kids that you were hanging around with. Um, and then also just your own personality and, and uh, temperament and maturity. And, um, and then as uh, you also experienced a sense of awakening of your own sexual identity uh, in puberty and in your teen years, whatever forms that took, you know, led you into, you know, the paths that you were on. Now, all of a sudden, here we are, we're parents. And it's like, well, what do I say to my kids? And when do I say it to help them get a grounded understanding of, well, what part does dating play in 
the process of discerning a call to the married life and how's that differ from courtship? There was a popular book in the, I think in late 1990s in the early 2000s uh, called I Kissed Dating Goodbye by Joshua Harris. And he was someone who was prophetically challenging something that was often um, uh, discussed in uh, like lots of chastity speakers would end up having to face these kind of questions. Okay, can I, can I date? And then if I can date, the one question, the first question, almost the only question is how far is too far? Right? And I did a lot of talks on chastity. I did a lot of talks to young people. And I can remember after having read that book, I was giving a talk to uh, some high school students and they asked me the question, so, you know, where does dating fit in? And I had really been impacted by Joshua Harris's book enough where at the end of my explanation, I was kind of stumbling around it. The, the girl was saying, so what you're saying is there is no dating? You sh- there's no dating at all? And I was kind of like cornered and I said, yeah. And I can remember just sort of losing the audience at that point. Um, and I think it wasn't that there, there wouldn't be a case to be made, but it was how I made it. I didn't have enough formation myself to be able to hand on um, a wise way of presenting this to my kids, uh, or to those kids, sorry. <laughs> At that point, they, they weren't my kids. So um, I, since then, have you know listened to Jason Everett and um, you know other talks. Mary Beth Bonacci was also really popular um, for years as a chastity speaker and others. But then listening to uh, Archbishop Fulton Sheen and then listening to um, these traditional Latin mass, these FSSP and uh, these, these priests, they are leaning upon a, a vision of, of pre-marriage relationships that came from the moral manuals of the time, of the, of the 50s and the 40s. And and those are built upon like traditional concepts connected to to marriage. So um, I wanted I want to share with you some of the insights I got from listening to those talks, Archbishop Fulton Sheen plus those others, and then end with Saint John Paul II. One of them was Father Ripperger in his talk on on courtship talked about the uh, the marriage. Um, the, the, the nuptial mass, and, and during the nuptial mass, it's the father who walks the daughter down the aisle, and she is veiled. And he makes a big deal of this, that she is veiled. And in the, in the, the understanding of the liturgy uh, of the traditional Latin mass is what is holy is veiled, that which is uh, most associated with divinity and sacred is protected by being veiled. And, 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 and this shows up in the nuptial mass. It's the, it's the bride that's veiled, not the groom. And so the bride being walked down the aisle by the father, he said, was a way of expressing in a gesture in the mass that the daughter has been under the authority of the father. 
This is how God has established things. And it's the father who then hands over the daughter to the husband, who now has the task to honor her, to honor her uh, as this uh, as this one who is veiled because of of who she is as a daughter of God. And there's this entrustment where when the entrustment occurs, then you can lift the veil. You lift the veil, there's the kiss, and then there's the handing over where now you're under his protection. You're under his guidance, under his leadership, where he is called upon to lay down his life for her to, and, and to do so out of a sense of loving and honoring her. And I was like, wow. I mean, you hear it, and I think it, maybe it's because I've, you know, how many weddings have we seen, you know, whether it's in movies or whatever, but have have you ever had that explained to you? I'm like, how did I get this old in my life? And that simple but profound point, maybe I just forgot it. And I was just as amazed the first time I heard it, but it was a beautiful point when I heard it just a few days ago and getting ready for this sharing today. And, um, and building off of that, there's this sense of saying what happened at the altar, this idea of honoring, I will honor you with my life if I receive you as my bride, as my wife. I'm going to honor you with my life by being willing to lay down my life for you. Never to take advantage of you, but to always love and honor you all the days of my life. And that's what's in the vow. And what Father Ripperger does is he goes backwards from there. He says, what you see on display, I'm paraphrasing now, what you see on display in the nuptial mass and the wedding mass is what ought to be, um, what ought to have been at work in the relationship up to that point up to that point. So let's now go back and say, whoa, wait a minute, this whole vision of understanding courtship rather than dating is something that is, it ought to put into question the basis from which we typically think about dating in relationship to kids, which I heard in one of these other talks that I listened to on courtship, which basically was saying, if you get your guidance about the nature of relationships that young men and young women should have before they get married from our culture, from movies, from TV shows, from the internet, what are you going to find? That dating is common and it's exciting and it's about pleasure and it's about romance and it's often about um, what is called theologically the marital act and it's something that is actually destroying and undermining the great foundations for a healthy, happy, holy, flourishing marriage. All right, back in a minute. Welcome back to Sound Insight. So I'm listening to these talks on courtship and uh, on on YouTube, listening to a couple of talks and uh, Archbishop Fulton Sheen and what they're talking about in terms of stages. And each of the three of them end up making a prophetic critique of the wider societal view that dating is about often it's about you know intense sexual desires being fostered and, and stirred and it's about um, the, the the kids being able to spend time alone and in doing so just leading them into 
great spiritual harm, great spiritual harm because of the way in which they end up um, uh, creating these sinful uh, sinful uh, bonds through the um, expressions of, of, of lust that will happen in so many of these dating relationships. So what they basically say is if you look at the state of marriage today and how many marriages end in divorce, you look at the presentation of dating and pre-marriage courtship as it's presented on TV, you're going to just be led astray. You're going to be led into darkness and sin. You're not going to be led into good, healthy, solid foundations for um, for a happy, holy marriage. And and then therefore, where do we go? What do we do? And so this is where there is a bit of divergence among the three uh, sources, but there is uh, uh, some basics. And one of the basics is um, if you take away that word dating, there's another word you can put in there, and that is company keeping, to keep company with. When is it okay for a young man to keep company alone with an, uh, a young woman? And the basic guidance that these talks were giving was, you know, you shouldn't really, you shouldn't allow company keeping between a young man and a young woman that is alone. Now, not together, right? You can have young men and women around uh, each other in groups so that it stays good, clean, fun. It doesn't foster and foment sexualized energy happening and, and kind of coupling up and uh, hooking up, this sort of thing. But instead, there's a sense of create environments that can be healthy, that can be uh, free from those kinds of energies being put at the center. And, uh, and therefore, well, when do you begin to move from those kind of relationships towards the one-on-one time that young men and young women have just taken for granted in dating relationships that kids have in fifth grade if you're just looking at the normal wider, the, the, the typical wider culture that we're living in today. Kids are quote-unquote dating and they're hanging out together super young age and as if that's the 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 right natural healthy thing and, and and these priests are warning us no it it's a bad thing you you you're you're getting into bad settings when when you start promoting or even talking about relationships like that instead well when when do you allow for company keeping or what we would call dating and it's well when the young man or the young woman is at a stage and an age in their lives when they could get married and not just get married, but when uh, the young man would be able to provide for a home, provide for um, the wife uh, and be able to make a living to be able to do that. And it's like, holy cow, man, that's, that's really something. Now, if you go back to the manuals where this was taught, it's built upon, again, some very traditional, uh, and traditional doesn't mean bad, but traditional, some uh, perennial um, insights and principles about human relationships. But it was also at a time where um, many young men were ready to take up uh, a trade and and make a living um, without college. And so, you know, by the time they're 18, 19, 20, 21, 22, if they had gone to some kind of school, trade school, vocational school, or even college, um, you know, at, at a, by the early 
20s, they are ready to go. Um, now, we live in a different time where kids seem to extend the immaturity of their childhood into their 20s, uh, into their mid-20s or late 20s. And, and, and that's there's so much sadness there because when it's when it's accompanied by the, the let's call it the ways of the world in dating relationships not creating a good foundation a healthy holy foundation for a long lasting healthy marriage there's a lot of healing that's needed in those circumstances a lot of conversion that's needed in those circumstances a lot of undoing of things um, that is often associated with that so so here we are okay raising our kids in this environment. And it's like, we don't want to put a stigma around dating the way that I grew up. We don't want to put a fear-based approach around it, but we do want to put a sense of saying, well, what's the vision? Well, the vision of this traditional approach is honor. If you are going to, in fact, um, want to, to grow in a sense of discerning whether this person is potentially a a good candidate to be a spouse, it has to be marked by honor. And what is honored? Well, what is honored is human excellence or virtue. And so the best criteria and the most important criteria for discerning a um, a potential uh, a potential future spouse is, well, holiness, godliness, and then human excellence, namely virtue the ability to, um, and the man to, to sacrifice, to sacrifice one's desires for the sake of the honor, to, to, for the sake of the human excellence, the purity, the modesty, the chastity, the self-control of the, the woman that he's dating. If he can't sacrifice his own desires in, uh, in a dating relationship, um, for her sake, but instead, whines or cajoles or puts pressure on uh, the woman to settle for less, uh, that's not godliness and that's not true manliness. That's not noble. That doesn't honor her. That's that's attempt to use her for one's own pleasure. And that's not what I want from my boys, for my boys, and that's certainly not what I want for the boys that would be um, uh, approaching me to want to potentially... Um, uh, court my daughters. So you can see how all of a sudden it's like, man, I need to be praying for um, the, the future spouses of my kids on the one hand, but I also need to be forming my kids to be able to make wise decisions, healthy, happy, holy decisions in their relationships that they're developing with the opposite sex. Okay, let's quickly go into what St. John Paul II says in Love and Responsibility about the way that this could unfold in, in this company keeping with, um, with, with someone that you might want to discern marrying. He, he says there are, four, there are four stages. The first stage or level of, of love is um, it's, um, it's called attraction. And, and by attraction, it's, it's not sexualized here. It's just this sense of saying, I see your dignity and I honor your dignity. I see that you are a gift, that you're singular, that there is something precious and unique about you. I see that gift quality that is yours. And I, um, I can celebrate it. I can affirm it. And again, it's not sexualized at this point. It's very simply a sense of saying, I see you as a gift. 
The second stage is then to say uh, the sexual urge is now engaged, and there's this sense of, I want you to be a gift to me. And so there's now this this sense of saying, I'm, I'm not just affirming you as a gift, but I'm drawn um, with that dimension of complementarity that uh, this woman, draw. I want to draw her to myself because of that sexual urge, which needs to be purified and cleansed, but that's the second layer. Um, that then, again, you still need to apply the, the idea of human excellence and, and virtue and honor if it's going to be um, expressed at this earlier stage in a way that isn't um, going to fall into sin. The third, which is something that will help correct and advance the relationship, is love as goodwill. And so love as goodwill means that there will be a deep sense of friendship, a deep sense of common purpose, a deep sense of common mission, where together you and I will seek to will the good of the other, where I want what is good for you, and together we can want what is good for the world. And so there's that sense of walking together in friendship. And, and you hear that all the time in, in, in you know, sort of, let's say, the common wisdom of, of folks that, you know, you marry your best friend, right? But then that leads in John Paul II to the highest level of love, which is self-donation, where I long to give myself to you as a gift. And that longing to give oneself as a gift is for life, and it's open to life, and it's something that is uh, meant for one and one person only. So that love as self-donation is that highest level of love. And when someone has that longing to do that, that ultimately is the blossoming of the vocation to the sacrament of holy matrimony. So it begins with the natural human sense of attraction. It moves towards that sense of saying, I am drawn to you sexually, but I do want what is good for you. And together, let's do something good in this world. And then there's a desire to say, I want to give myself to you for life. Love is self-donation. And that's a beautiful outline for forming your kids and saying, what does it look like to, to court as part of a vocation in marriage? God bless your day.